Giant ant. Right, it is, It was trying to carry these eggs. Yes, well, it's natural behavior for an ant when it's attacked, take the eggs to safety. The worker ant would give his life rather than abandon the eggs, you know. He couldn't have had much of a chance, could he? I mean, he must have died quickly. Yes. These eggs scattered about. Other ants must have been frightened away. I wonder what sort of a world could produce an insect that size. Welcome to Who Worth Watching, where we're going through this 50-year-old show from the beginning to determine what's still worth watching for a modern audience. I'm your host, a man who has been detoxing from a lag of who, and is glad to be getting my fix again. <laughs> my co-host is Guy, who I suspect is on the side of the locusts in this one. <laughs> Hello, Guy. Hello, Ron. Are you ready for the insect apocalypse? <laughs> I've been living it all my life. <laughs> so it's been a long while since we finished the first Doctor Who season. Probably longer than future breaks will be, but I do think it's good to refresh our palate between seasons. So, Guy, after some time away, and this be that season having been your first exposure to Doctor Who, do you find yourself anticipating or dreading going through this season? Uh, I'd say mostly anticipating. I get a kick out of the last season, and this first installment, well, I don't want to reveal too much about my reaction, <laughs> but overall, I'm anticipating, I think. Yeah, and things go a little differently this season, so it'll be interesting to see what you think. Now, do you remember months ago, at the end of season one, the end of the Reign of Terror, and I told you what the next story would be, Planet of Giants, and I asked you to visualize what that might mean and, and put a pin in it. So now, now that we're here, now that you've seen it, how would you compare your image of, of what Planet of Giants would be to the reality? <laughs> well, I figured a couple ways it could go. It could be just planet of really, really gigantic things and people and everything. Then I also thought, well, maybe it's being a little clever and it's like a planet where everyone is a mental giant, you know, like a Leonardo <laughs> da Vinci or so forth. But neither one of those. Well, I guess, I guess technically the first one was kind of right. I mean, mm -hmm. everything is giant, but it, it's not really, well, we'll get to that soon enough. I guess. <laughs> okay. So this is the first story of season two. And it's interesting because behind the scenes, people were disappointed in that their plan was to kick off season two with a cracking Dalek story to catch everyone's attention. But they just couldn't get that together in time. And so this is what they had available to go with. And this was the story that the creator, Sidney Newman, always wanted to do. It was supposed to be the very first story. And it's really the only story that he ever really pushed. He just wanted to do the big people story. And so it was supposed to be done instead of the cavemen, but they just couldn't make it work. The production challenges were too big and they were trying to make the story work. It went through multiple writers. So finally it was time to do it. Mostly directed by Mervyn Pinfield, who did a little bit of directing previously, but he was mostly a technical wizard. And I think that's why they put him on this because there's so, so many special effects. The final writer, Lewis Marks, was influenced by the book Silent Spring, which had come out recently and which has had a big impact on the world for better or worse. Uniquely in Doctor Who history, this story was considered so padded and boring at the ending by management that they edited out an entire episode worth of story, which is why it's three episodes instead of four. Hmm. Yeah, that's not something that happened a lot last season, I don't think. 
<laughs> yeah, could have, could have, would have been beneficial to happen more often. A lot of people debate whether it was a good or bad idea in this case, so we can probably talk about that more at the end. Now, on the DVD specials, they actually recreate the missing content. They brought in actors like future guest Toby Hado playing the bad guy, and they used some animation for the missing footage. So you can watch it. I checked into it a bit, but I, I didn't watch it because I wanted to be responding to the actual story that people saw. Yeah. And so this was the triumphant return of Doctor Who, and is it worth watching? Well, <laughs> we'll find out. So we're starting with the first episode, Planet of Giants. Yeah, we're back in the good old TARDIS control room with the crew just having left the Doctor's favorite period in history, the Reign of Terror, where they had a relaxing vacation stay. The Doctor's got a real nice cloak in this episode, too. It's a, sort of a Dracula cloak. <laughs> yeah, and it was chosen in part to make the special effects work, so we can talk about oh, that. Well. But uh, I, I will mention that this was filmed right after Reign of Terror, so before they actually took a break. And a lot of TV shows like to do that, right? They like to shoot the first episode of the next season before they go on break. But that way, when they get back, they've got a little bit of leeway to get up and running before they have to get something out. That makes sense. And I could kind of tell because in the Reign of Terror, the Doctor, or, or William Hartnell, was actually very spry and energetic. He was really there in that one in ways sometimes he's not. This one, he is, I know it's also the character, so it may be acting, but he just looks tired. <laughs> and I think it, it's clear that it's at the end of a season and it's a complicated shoot with all these special effects and everything. And uh, until the last episode where he actually seems to perk up a bit, he seems pretty down. I don't know if you noticed that or... No, I mean, I, I noticed, uh, of course, in, in in the middle episode, there's a portion that calls for him to act tired, but beyond that, I didn't really notice. So, surprise, something's going wrong with the TARDIS console. <laughs> and Barbara actually burns herself touching the console because it's overheating. Turns out the doctor had tried a trick. He said he changed the frequency to get them back to Earth in the proper time. Because they got back to Earth last time, just wasn't the time they wanted to be. It seems like his trick hasn't worked. They don't know what's going on, but while they're still in flight, the doors start opening, and we get the first Susan screaming of the season. <laughs> Can't tell you how much I've missed Susan screaming. <laughs> and later she says the doors have never opened in transit before, but now as an yeah. experienced Doctor Who person, I'm sure you've spotted the <laughs> problem with that. Well, that one that I liked, what was it, Edge of Destruction? Yeah, yeah. I'm thinking in that a similar thing happened. Yep. <laughs> and she screamed about it then, so... <laughs> Uh, but they managed to land, and the doctor, who's usually telling everyone, you know, how brilliant his flying is and however they're exactly where they need to be and all that, this time he's very upset and irritable. I mean, he's like, you know, first story irritable, <laughs> Barbara and Ian. <laughs> they're asking him questions, and he's just snapping at them for not understanding time travel, and they're like, well, you've never explained time travel to us, so how are we supposed to understand it? <laughs> But his thing is, with the doors having opened while they were in transit, surely something bad must have happened. And then uh, he goes to turn on the scanner monitor to see what's outside, and it explodes when they turn it on. And I, unfortunately, I did not understand what was happening, because what they do here to show what's supposed to be the actual glass on the monitor exploding, <laughs> all they did was put as the image on the monitor some cracked glass and i couldn't figure out ah. what that you know it didn't i didn't understand until i watched this a second time 
that it was supposed to be that the monitor itself had cracked the glass. I thought we were looking at a picture of something. It didn't make any sense. Maybe uh, old-time okay. TVs. You know? <laughs> huh. Yeah, I, uh, I I didn't have a problem with that. I, I got what was going on with that one. Because usually I am the one who misses details like that. <laughs> <laughs> so the doctor explains to Ian that the space pressure was too great and forced the doors open. And who knows what else the space pressure might have done. Yeah. And somewhere along in here, I think the doctor makes a nice little apology to Barbara, too, for being such a jackass. He does. Like, 30 seconds after he was sniping at them, he, he gets more apologetic, <laughs> so I'll give him that. Yeah. Outside, it's a strange, rocky landscape, and Susan and Barbara are kneeling down and looking at this particularly big rock, and they're a little confused because the upper portion of the rock is actual rock, but the bottom portion appears to be concrete that would be there to secure the rock. But this is a huge rock, so there's no reason to put concrete there. There's nowhere the rock would be able to go. You know, you mentioned the space pressure. I think we need to point out that generally in space, you don't really have a lot of pressure. <laughs> it's a vacuum, uh, Generally, uh, now how much do you know about time travel? <laughs> <laughs> that is true. I'm definitely not a not a doctor. Oh. <laughs> yeah, I'm afraid if you were there, the doctor would have been sniping at you too. <laughs> so Ian looks around and points out that these rocks look like big pebbles of sand. <laughs> I'm not sure how he would determine that, but okay. And we know we're back in Doctor Who because the first thing the doctor suggests. Now that they're in an alien landscape of, you know, with unknown dangers, is that they should split up. <laughs> <laughs> and if I remember right, Ian or Barbara, one of them sounds faintly disappointed or uh, annoyed by the suggestion. I, I, I <laughs> might be remembering wrong. Maybe that I'm projecting my own reaction <laughs> right. onto it. Yeah, uh, that could be the case. So the doctor and Barbara go off, and Barbara immediately freaks out at seeing a huge snake appears to be climbing up the rock. It really doesn't look anything like a, a snake. It looked more like a piece of flexible conduit or something to me. <laughs> and the doctor eventually identifies it as a giant dead earthworm. Yeah. And it's funny because he says he can tell it's dead because of its posture. <laughs> 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 Meanwhile, Susan and Ian are off elsewhere, and Susan finds a big pile of giant egg thingies turns out to be guarded by a now-dead giant ant. Ian points out that when an ant colony is threatened, the behavior of a worker ant is to protect the eggs and to move the eggs, if possible, to safety. And so that's what the, this ant would have done, but then something killed it while it was in the process of doing that. And Ian has this little close-up on his face where he says, I wonder what sort of world could produce an insect that size? <laughs> <laughs> so, Guy, at what point here did you pick up what was going on? <laughs> Actually, I think I think I picked up on it before I actually started watching because uh, <laughs> you know on on BritBox they give you a little screenshot with every episode, and I think one of them had something that was obviously uh, you know like a, a matchbox that was much too big or you know one of the right. one of the props <laughs> that was obviously not right. Yeah, that's <laughs> always a challenge with these spoilers. <laughs> so the doctor's with Barbara, and he says that they're in a maze of some sort, but he can tell this maze was designed by some kind of intelligence, you know, some kind of brain. Mm -hmm. And then Ian and Susan come across a giant billboard for night-scented stock. And I didn't know what this was, and I looked it up, and it turns out it's just an ornamental plant. So this is advertising seeds 
for this plant. And looking at the billboard, it says it's from a seed company that is in England, so they know they're on Earth. Mm-hmm. And meanwhile, the doctor finds a large two-by-four that he says has been cut by a manufacturer, and he knocks it over by accident, and it turns out it has a burnt end, and he immediately realizes it's a matchstick. Because if <laughs> I find a piece of burnt wood, I'm like, it's a giant matchstick. <laughs> <laughs> but now the doctor knows what's up. And meanwhile, Ian and Susan find a giant matchbox. And now Ian decides he knows what's up. Obviously, this is a World's Fair exhibition where everything has been made giant size. <laughs> I just find it kind of funny. <laughs> you know, I suppose it's more realistic than what's actually happened in the space pressure and all yeah. that. Yeah, <laughs> it's a natural first guess before going all the way off the cliff of madness, I guess. <laughs> but Susan tells him emphatically that he's wrong. She says, these things haven't been made bigger. We've been made smaller. And now they do something actually I think is very clever and really unusual in Doctor Who and, and kind of artistic, which is the Doctor and Barbara are in one location and Susan and Ian are in a different location, but the Doctor and Susan are saying the same things at the same time. They made the same realizations. So we, we keep cutting between the conversations where the other person said it and then we hear the response from the other person in the other group. So the Doctor at the same time has been saying that they've been made smaller and that they're roughly the size of an inch, and Susan says the same thing. And the theory here is when the TARDIS doors open, the space pressure forced them all to reduce. <laughs> I guess it just sort of pressurized them down <laughs> to one-inch people. <laughs> Seems like that would be painful. <laughs> yeah, you'd think. But now we get a shot of the TARDIS where it had landed between these giant rocks, and then there's a shocking zoom out to show actually it's a tiny little TARDIS nestled between some rocks that are a walkway to an Earth home. Yeah, that was a pretty good shot. And if I were a kid at the time, especially, I would think I would have been impressed by that. Yeah. And then Ian and Susan are suddenly plunged into darkness and they hear a massive crunching noise. Susan runs. Ian hides in the matchbox that they found. Nothing could go wrong with that. <laughs> and we see the legs of a man picking up a briefcase and the matchbox. So now Ian has been separated from the group. And we get this shot of him. It's pretty funny with the actor throwing himself back and forth. In oh, what's supposed yeah. To be <laughs> yeah. It's like the Star Trek bridge scenes. You yeah. Know, when the ship's under attack. Have but you seen, I'll send you a link or you could search this. Have you seen where people de shakeified, you know, whatever that's called, they stabilize the image when they're doing that? I don't think so. No. Oh, it's really funny because you just see the people on the bridge, you know, throwing themselves around. <laughs> <laughs> The man who picked those things up turns out to be a guy named Pharaoh, and he sits down on a chair outside, puts the briefcase and matchbox down, and then we see a black cat nearby cleaning itself. <laughs> and as we've already <laughs> learned in The Prisoner, <laughs> surely having a black cat around won't be a problem. <laughs> <laughs> I kind of wonder if they had one black cat actor that they <laughs> just moved between these productions. Could be. And then the man is reading some notes in his little notebook, and he gets a cigarette out, and uh-oh, you know, when you get a cigarette out, you're probably going to grab a match. <laughs> <laughs> and he reaches down for the matchbox, but Ian is saved by another man suddenly appearing with a lighter already lit to take care of the cigarette. Actually, I thought that was a nice little shot, too, and it was a little surprise. Uh, wasn't it? The man who's shown up is Forrester. Apparently, he's talked to Pharaoh, but they never met in person before. And in their conversation, it turns out Pharaoh is some sort of government scientist, and he's prepared a report that's harmful to Forrester's business interests. Because Forrester went into production on this insecticide called DN6 before getting full approval. So if the project is scrapped now, he's going to be ruined. 
And Pharaoh says, well, DN6, which is obviously DDT, <laughs> DN6 is totally destructive. And Forrester says, well, that's the idea, wasn't it? It'll even prevent locusts from breeding altogether. And Pharaoh points out there are many insects vital to agriculture that must not die, and DN6 will kill them as well. And Pharaoh explains he's going to make a call to his superiors to let them know what he's determined, and then he's going to mail in his report. And then, and this is a brilliant thing for him to mention right now, he's going to go on vacation with his small boat that's in the harbor about 10 miles away, and he's going to explore the rivers of France. I guess first you'll have to go across the channel. Mm -hmm. So probably a bad idea for him to mention <laughs> that part of his plan. Forrester then tries to bribe Pharaoh, who's not interested. So Forrester wins the debate by shooting him. <laughs> he just pulls out a gun and shoots him. Yeah, that's not really something that... uh that he could have seen coming, uh, to be fair to him. And although, I mean, uh, Forrester was talking in pretty stark terms, you know, like, but this is you know, going to ruin me, that mm -hmm. type of thing, you know. So it wouldn't be the, you might want to do something like say, uh, well, let me think about it a little more. I'll get back to you. <laughs> right, exactly. <laughs> and he even gave him that chance, right? I mean, in, in Forrester's favor, he said, well, you know, we could make some changes. But Pharaoh's like, no, everything would have to change. I'm, you know, I'm not going to budge. <laughs> So then we're back to the crew minus Ian, and they're walking along when they hear this beating sound in the air, and a giant bee falls dead in front of them. And yeah, I thought it was pretty effective. The sound was effective. The bee falling was mm. effective. I don't know. Did you have any feelings about that? <laughs> uh, you know, they didn't really. I don't remember the part where they hear the sound. I remember the bee popping up there. I might have been looking away from the screen or something. But it, it worked well enough. The dead bee seemed, uh, I didn't have any issues with it. <laughs> Yeah, and the doctor says the bee has a distinctive aroma that they've noticed on the other dead insects they've found. So he says there should be no eating or drinking because they might be able to be killed by whatever killed these things. And this is the sort of thing that I would think I'd probably keep in mind if the doctor said it to me because I wouldn't want to eat or drink something that'd kill me. <laughs> but But as we'll see, not everyone heard the message with the same seriousness. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if you noticed this, but I noticed that clearly they had like one ant model that they used in the one shot. And then the mm. entire rest of the episode, and I think in the next episode, they keep saying, we're seeing all these dead ants everywhere. <laughs> They're just trying to <laughs> implant in your mind the idea that you've seen a bunch of dead ants when there was a total of one. <laughs> and they then hear a cannon-like explosion, which of course was the shot that killed Pharaoh. And yeah. we get a shot of Pharaoh dead on the ground, and then Ian gets out of his matchbox, and he walks to Pharaoh's head, where he uses a handkerchief to test if he's breathing. And they did this, the, the head, it appears to be just projected on a big movie screen that Ian is standing in front of. And unfortunately, again, at least with, you know, modern television, it just doesn't work. It just looks like he's standing in front of a big movie screen. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it wasn't, wasn't the best special effect. Yeah. But you could tell what it was meant to convey, so there's yeah. that. Ian rejoins the crew, and then he brings them over to the giant projected head. <laughs> and Susan screams as we now see a giant cat head staring at them. <laughs> and it's the end of the episode. Yeah. Which would be something to scream about. I mean, <laughs> if I were in that situation, I'd be a little nervous. Yep. We're on to episode two, Dangerous Journey. <laughs> yeah. Doctor Who, or the Doctor, I should say, 
He, uh, he warns all of his crew, whatever you do, don't look into the cat's eyes. <laughs> well, he and Ian continue for the next 30 seconds to stare directly into his eyes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, they, uh, they don't seem to heed their own advice on that. <laughs> Soon enough, the cat immediately loses interest and walks away. <laughs> Which I don't buy for a second. I, I've been around lots of cats. That cat would have been all over them. <laughs> yeah, it's it's not the most satisfying cliffhanger resolution that I've seen in this show, I think. <laughs> oh, well, they got out of that mess for now, at least. And the doctor recommends not moving yet. He says we could be mistaken for mice, and I don't fancy being part of the cat's <laughs> diet. If he doesn't fancy it, that means that he wouldn't want to become a fancy feast. <laughs> uh, all right, sorry about that. They discuss trying to speak to normal people, normal-sized people. They have several counter-arguments. For one thing, they think it'll be difficult to communicate. They might even be speaking in an entirely different frequency that people won't even be able to hear, for all they know. And then, when people see all these little inch-high people they might take them for study which uh valid i would hope that most people on a finding an inch high person would try to treat it with some measure of rights and so forth but <laughs> you never know an inch high person isn't something you run across every day yep uh so valid concern there and as the doctor points out the people that live in this house are murderers or one of them is <laughs> and he's not quite right about that. It's actually somebody who's visiting the house. But, mm. you know, he's in the ballpark. And the the murderer will return to the scene of the crime before very long. So he's he's right on that count, too. The cat is now nowhere to be seen. So they're starting to feel a little more confident. But just as they're about to get moving, there's a loud pounding sound and a shadow falls over them. <laughs> and Ian hollers, I can see a huge leg coming. Run. <laughs> <laughs> so that's not something you see coming every day, but mm -hmm. when you do, you better run. Barbara stumbles for plot reasons, and uh, <laughs> Ian stays back to help her. They both get away, but they run the opposite direction that the doctor and Susan ran. So they're split up once again, and Barbara and Ian hide in the briefcase, which... You would think that Ian, having just been jostled around <laughs> in the matchbox, might have a different idea, but, well, that's what was there, I guess. So that's where they hide. <laughs> a man in a lab coat, Smithers, has come back with the murderer, Forrester. And Forrester has made up a story. He says, Pharaoh had a gun. He wanted to steal the formula. There was a struggle. You know, all the typical stuff you'd expect a murderer to try to pull out of his posterior. <laughs> Smithers says, he's been shot through the heart from some feet away. Even I can see that, and I am no expert. <laughs> yeah, I think he says, don't try to tell that story to the cops or something. Yeah, yeah. And th this sets up something we'll see later in the episodes that I like about this story, which is nobody is fooled by dumb stories for a second. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and it's, it's interesting, too, that Smithers says what he does, because if he immediately realizes that Forrester is the murderer, you might expect him to be a little nervous about that. But he doesn't seem to be, and Forrester says you're very detached about it. Yeah, and in their earlier conversation, now we didn't know who Smithers was at the time, but when Forrester was talking to Pharaoh before he shot him, Pharaoh said that Smithers had not yet understood 
the situation because he was so enamored and attached to this project. So, mm-hmm. so we have been given a hint that Smithers is very into what's going on. Right. When Forrester points out that he's detached, Smithers replies, I've seen more death than you can imagine. What puzzles me is how cool you are. <laughs> Forrester says he doesn't, he doesn't feel guilty that he did what he had to do. And this provokes Smithers to a monologue on how much work he's done, and this kind of explains his role that you were just mentioning. He has spent years of long work days trying to develop this DN6 pesticide, and he has, at least what he says, are altruistic motives. He doesn't use that word, but he, he says basically that he's trying to help humanity. He's seen a lot of people starve to death, and... He thinks this will put a dent in that starvation by destroying the bugs that eat the crops and so forth. And interestingly, it was after this that there were some innovations in agriculture that ended up, you know, saving like millions of people from starving. So his goal here is, is you know, a realistic and, and a good one, you know. Hmm. Whether, oh, whether yeah. DN6 is the way to get there, we could debate about that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It, uh, yeah, we'll get to that. <laughs> Smithers thinks that Forrester has ruined everything with his little murder spree, but, but Forrester has a plan. He made note of uh, Pharaoh's comment about his boat trip, and uh, he thinks that that could be made to look like a boating accident. And Forrester says, don't worry, you could leave it all to me. Now, the one thing he doesn't mention is he talks about, you know, well, they'll find his body having fallen off the boat, but they'll find his body with a bullet hole in it, and he doesn't quite... Uh, say uh, how that's going to work out. <laughs> yeah, yeah, there's that. And he also mentions that uh, they'd find the boat overturned, which uh, which would probably only make sense if there was really rough weather out there. So maybe he's going to wait for a day when the weather's real rough. <laughs> Forrester points out Smithers does want something, even though it's not money. Smithers wants recognition as being the inventor of DN6. But Smithers has a counter-argument. He says that the experiment is important to save people from dying of starvation. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, so at least from Smithers's expressed viewpoint, he's got the high ground here. And, of course, in this whole story, I could never get over the name Smithers. Of course. <laughs> from The Simpsons, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Forrester says they'll move the body. But first he carries Pharaoh's briefcase into a laboratory. It's the door that opens right on the patio where the whole sordid affair took place, in fact. He carries it in there, sets down the briefcase, and he leaves. And Ian and Barbara emerge from it. They're dizzy, but mostly unharmed. Barbara has some bumps, including one that she got from a paperclip. <laughs> Which, if they're only one inch high, that means the paper clip is probably about the same length as one of them. <laughs> so, it eh, could happen. Although, this may be as good a place as any to mention some of the physics considerations about tiny people. When you have the height of something, you get the cube root of the weight of something. If you have the height, then you're also having the width and the depth. Mm. So that means that instead of just 50% less weight, you're actually getting seven-eighths less weight. Mm -hmm. So the small people, I I know this is stuff that you are probably well aware of, so this is mostly for 
Our, our listeners benefit, <laughs> and they're probably well aware of it, too. <laughs> I've gone this far, so I may as well finish it up. So anyway, these, these shrunken people are probably very, very light and probably much less prone to be damaged by <laughs> damage that involves weight and blunt impact and that sort of thing. It so. reminds me a little bit of, you know, a, a, a relatively young baby is kind of indestructible. <laughs> I mean, you know, oh, yeah. You can drop on the floor or whatever. Not that I've tried this. <laughs> <laughs> Barbara asks Ian if they could find water to bathe her ankle, which is from the ankles injured from where she stumbled before they started fleeing the, the leg. Ian goes to find some. Meanwhile, Forrester and Smithers hide the body in a storeroom, so Forrester's not in any big hurry to go off and set up the boating accident. Nearby, the doctor and Susan are at the base of a downspout. Mm-hmm. The doctor figures that the pipe goes to the room where the briefcase was taken, and he notes that the pipe is corroded, so there are plenty of handholds. It also has a strong chemical smell, so he... He uh, deduces from that that it's probably sanitary to go up inside the pipe. Yes, he says germs would have been killed. Now, I'm thinking strong smell, and they've had all this insecticide smell around. I'm not sure that my conclusion would be it's safe to go in an enclosed pipe. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that was, uh, that had kind of crossed my mind, too, but he's the doctor, not me. (laughs) So, the doctor makes a kind of a selfless decision here, and this uh, sort of refers back to the last season where we saw him sort of gradually change the way he approaches things. He decides that Ian and Barbara need rescuing, and the doctor and Susan begin climbing the pipe. Now, a different doctor not too long ago might have (laughs) said, well, that's too bad for them. We really have to get back to the ship. Yep. (laughs) He's been doing some growing and so on. Well, not in this. <laughs> in this episode, he's been doing some shrinking. <laughs> but anyway, Ian comes back to Barbara. He's been looking for water, but there's no water the way he looked, just a gas tap. And uh, he just kind of mentions it casually, but if you can remember this for one more episode, there will be a little <laughs> bit of a payoff to it. Barbara feels up to walking now, so they head off together in the other direction. Meanwhile, in the pipe, Susan and the doctor are, are making progress. And that's, well, not much to say about that. <laughs> They're just <laughs> climbing up. Ian, back with uh, Barbara doing their exploring, he sees a rack of test tubes and he says, Look at those enormous test tubes. <laughs> and uh, this is the place where I think we should insert a clip, if you can find it, of a, an old Saturday Night Live skit called Tiny Elvis. Hmm. Tiny Elvis. We're gonna sleep in a hat. We're gonna dance in a shoe. We're gonna climb up a chair. Yeah, that's what I'm gonna do with you. Cause as a me, I'm Tiny Elvis. Thank you. Thank you very much. Well, hey, Sonny, Red, you boys having a good time? <laughs> Count on it, Tiny Elvis. Taking care of business, Tiny. <laughs> well, that's good, man. That's real good. Hey, Sonny, Red, look how big that lamp is, man. That's huge. <laughs> <laughs> that's right, E. I mean, I don't know how I'd ever turn that thing off, man. That is enormous. <laughs> <laughs> that's right, Elvis. That's a big lamp. <laughs> sure is, man. 
It's a really big laugh. <laughs> That's hilarious, Elvis. Yeah, Elvis, you're really funny. Hey, man, look at that soft shaker, man. That is huge. <laughs> <laughs> I don't mean nothing by it. He's just a big guy. That's all. <laughs> okay. I don't recall that one. I'll check it out. <laughs> but this this line of Ian's just seemed so, mm. uh, I don't know, out of place, incongruous. I don't know. It just, look at those enormous test tubes. Well, what did you expect, Ian? <laughs> <laughs> oh, well. Anyway, they come to a big bowl of seeds, which is actually a very tiny bowl of seeds. But, you know, it looks big. And Ian ad- identifies it as wheat. He turns his back for a minute, and right away, Barbara picks up a piece of it. She says, oh, yes, you're right, it is wheat. It's all covered in some sticky stuff like toffee. (laughs) And actually, you know, if this were, if they were having a luckier day, it could just be some sweet feed for a horse, (laughs) because that's actually oats also mixed with corn, but they they cover it with molasses. But that's not what this is. This is (laughs) what you fear it is. It's a wheat that's covered with the insecticide. But Ian doesn't think about what she says very much because he's transfixed. He sees a pack of litmus paper lying on the counter before him. And uh, so he's kind of absent-minded when Barbara asks for his handkerchief and wipes off her hands with it. He doesn't notice her do that. He just hands it over to her. He's thinking about how often he's held a piece of litmus paper in his fingers. And now he's using a pack of litmus paper for a seat. Yeah, I wasn't sure about this. Maybe as a science teacher or something. I'm not, I mean, it's what is it's to determine acidity or something, right? I, d- I didn't look it up, so I should. Yeah, it, it's for uh, pH levels, if I remember right. It turns either blue or pink depending on how much acid there is. So I guess it's fair. He is a science teacher, so he probably would have been dealing yeah. with this. And then later on, we'll find a notebook. I think maybe in the third episode, where uh, he he can he can decipher some of the scientists' formulas, but he can't figure everything out. Having taken the time to sit, Ian notice, notices this room is a laboratory. He says, which makes it all the dangerous for us. Whatever killed those insects could easily kill us. And at this point, Barbara looks worriedly at her sticky hands. And now she remembers that the doctor said something about that. A little too late now. But Ian says, uh, just sort of uh, unwittingly uh, driving the knife in, says, well, don't touch anything, eh? I mean, look at the way these seeds are coated. They're obviously samples. <laughs> so that doesn't make her feel any better. It's really unusual for Barbara to be irresponsible and then to start hiding what's happened i mean as we'll see here she you know she initially tried to say something and i think she tried to say something once or twice more but no Mm -hmm. one quite hears it and then she starts hiding it anyway it's a very unusual thing for barbara to do that usually it would be susan doing that sort of thing but if you remember Mm -hmm. um in the last story reign of terror susan spent the whole time being sick and out of it so probably best not to have her do it yet again (laughs) (laughs) so they talk about how they can get down to ground level the string would be too thick. Barbara suggests they need a reel of cotton. And just the the talking about the what they would do to get down to ground level, it, it just sort of sends her into a minor despair. She says, it's all so ridiculous, Ian, and then <laughs> she sits down. And Ian tries to console her, but he's missing a key piece of information, which is Barbara's sticky hands. 
So he can't really console her effectively because he doesn't know what the real problem is. Mm -hmm. Ian gets the idea that the briefcase might hold enough paper clips to build a ladder to the ground. And in my opinion, this is not <laughs> a great idea for various reasons. First, how many paper clips are likely to be in a briefcase? If you assume they're an inch long, you're going to need dozens and dozens of them. And then, how would Ian and Barbara string together paper clips that are as tall as they are? How would they handle the weight of the chain once once it was assembled? Now, that one, you know, with the physics of being shrunk and all that, they maybe could do that. <laughs> yeah, I think when you get shrunk, you can now hold up things that are like 10 times your weight, right? That's the Probably, whole idea of like spiders, yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah the ants and whatnot, yeah. yeah. I guess, basically, I think this is more, and, and even, uh, I think Barbara says something like, that's an idea. Like, she doesn't, <laughs> she doesn't say, that's a good idea. She says, that's an idea. All I could think of here were those little red monkey things that hooked together and they used them oh, in the toy yeah, store. the <laughs> barrel of monkeys. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, uh, having worked in offices for many years, I've, uh, I've done my share of stringing together paper clips and, uh. <laughs> It would be potentially valid plan. I think the real big sticking point is just there aren't going to be that many paper clips in the briefcase. <laughs> but it's something to do until they have a better idea. Ian thinks he may be able to open the flap of the briefcase for easier searching. And this excites Barbara because she realizes the briefcase may contain information about the insecticide. <laughs> uh, Ian says maybe, but the other things are much more important. <laughs> uh, to, to him, that's true. He doesn't know. He walks away, and uh, Barbara scrubs her hands kind of like uh, Lady Macbeth trying to get the stain out. Yeah, I thought of the same thing, and, you know, I, th I thought she did a pretty good job uh, throughout these episodes of showing her desperation. And like you say, and I think this is what ties into Lady Macbeth, it's not just that she's trying to get this chemical off her hands, it's that she feels guilty for having been dumb enough to get it on her hands, and then right. now she's lying to Ian about it. All of that comes into her trying to scrub this off of her hands. <laughs> right, right. It's kind of the the simple plan thing, you know, yeah. where you do one little thing and it snowballs. <laughs> so meanwhile, Susan and the doctor are still in the pipe, five by five. That's an alien's reference. <laughs> The doctor seems a bit winded, but uh, but he keeps at it, and that's always. Wait to think about. It. I mean, if they're an inch high and they're climbing this pipe that would be, you know, going way up the side of a building, this is basically the equivalent of climbing a mountain or something, you know. So, yeah, 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 it's it's a it's an enormous scale. I mean, it'd be going up to well, it'd be going up to waist level from the ground because the sink is probably about waist level. But still, yeah, it's a good trek. But then again, they are shrunk so they're not carrying nearly as much weight as they would be <laughs> otherwise so yeah it's a it's a long it's a long climb however you look at it though i'm not sure the doctor should be as winded as he is <laughs> ian is squatting next to one of the briefcase latches trying to figure out which way it has to be pushed and barbara's shouting helpful advice <laughs> try a different direction something like that i don't remember exactly she doesn't notice that a housefly has landed on a cork near her. Ian gets the latch open, but Barbara is mesmerized by the fly. It's not really doing anything but standing, or yeah, it is standing, I guess, uh, squatting something for whatever flies do in a cork. It's doing <laughs> that, and she faints. 
It is creepy looking. It's actually not uh, not badly done. No, and unlike uh, what we've seen see so far, at one point, but it's still good. Oh, okay. I didn't notice the string, but unlike what we've seen so far, this thing is moving because you know, as you say, they are kind of puppeting it. And I thought it was really well done, and mm. the movement was well done, and and uh, and as you say, it was creepy. I I didn't see any problem oh, yeah. at all with this as a fact, an effect compared to some of the other things we've seen. <laughs> oh yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I, uh, you know, I, I may have picked on Barbara a little bit for fainting, but I probably would be in the same boat <laughs> if I saw <laughs> something that big and ugly uh, right next to me. Ian comes down to check on her, and he's startled by a noise. Uh, it, it to me, it sounds a lot like a pheasant bursting out of cover. <laughs> um, he watches it fly away. Then there's a another sound, a different, kind of a louder, lower sound that prompts him to drag Barbara back into the briefcase. <laughs> and that is Forrester and Smithers entering the laboratory. Mm-hmm. They have some tense dialogue. Neither seems to trust the other very much, or for that matter, like the other very much. Smithers proposes cleaning the blood off the <laughs> flagstones outside. It's probably a good idea if you want to cover up a murder. And Smithers asks Forrester, you'd do anything to get what you want, wouldn't you? Forrester replies, wouldn't you? Aren't you? <laughs> so, valid point. And I gotta say, as we'll see here with Smithers, his character is very confusing to me, because on the one hand, he should more or less understand everything that's going on, and he's participating in covering up a murder. On the other hand, later on, he seems to not know a bunch of stuff all of a sudden and be surprised by things, and it, the whole thing... Doesn't make a lot of sense, especially since he's a scientist who's been working on DN6 for years. So, you know, when he when he gets these revelations about it, it's kind of like, well, why wouldn't you have understood this all along? <laughs> yeah, yeah. I uh, there there may there may be an element of uh, precaution in it, you know, knowing that Forrester has already killed one guy at this place. Uh, right. There's probably no reason he wouldn't kill another if he thought it was necessary. No, I understand that. Mm-hmm. It's just, yeah. you know, it's just what he knows and what he understands really doesn't make sense as we go through the story. Yeah, uh, yeah. yeah. Like, uh, apparently Forrester has is, is given him some kind of lie about what Farrell wanted to do with his report or what he said in the report. Because later on, it seems Smithers is under the impression that Farrell was just writing lies about him. Right. Uh, then we'll get we'll get to that. In the sink, while Forrester and Smithers have entered, or maybe after they're done, the doctor's lying exhausted on the lip of the drain. He's made it up there, but he's apparently unconscious. And Susan is uh, reviving him, helps him get up. And she says she heard talking just now, a low growling sound. So yeah. that was Forrester and Smithers having their little talk. And I say, I don't know the physics of this. I don't know if they're right about the idea that, that one-inch high people would not be able to, to hear things. I'm not sure about yeah. it. But, yeah, that, that, yeah it, it seemed kind of kind of counterintuitive to me. I mean, I can accept that their vocal cords, the shrunk people's vocal cords might be small enough that they'd generate sound at higher frequencies and so on, but but I'm not sure why being shrunk would make them perceive sounds right. differently. It's not like they're microscopic, right? I mean, if they were yeah. a lot smaller, it might be different. But who knows? <laughs> yeah. Barbara wakes up. Ian tells her that the fly flew and it's dead now. 
He says it landed on those seeds that died instantly, <laughs> which uh, horrifies Barbara because that's what she's got all over her hands. She wants to have a look. They take about three steps. And they're, <laughs> they're it's the like, bowl. yeah, I was right in front of them. It's like, I must go take a look. <laughs> <laughs> it's just as Ian said. There's a dead fly and a bowl of sticky seeds. Ian says, pretty lethal stuff. The fly must have died the moment it landed. <laughs> and Barbara says, stop it. Which, again, is understandable. <laughs> but she has that information that he doesn't. Mm. She seems about to tell him about her little indiscretion with the sticky seeds. But they both hear Susan calling their names from the sink. Ian says, what was it you wanted to say to me? Barbara replies, oh, that's not important now. Listen, if Susan's found a way in, that means we can all get out. <laughs> Ian and Barbara appear at the edge of the sink, looking down into it, and there was much rejoicing, which is the the Monty Python and the Holy Grail. Thing. <laughs> Beyond the forest, they met Lancelot and Galahad, and there was much rejoicing. Susan says, climb down the plug chain to us. Ian and Barbara get started, but the partners in crime, Smithers and Forrester, have finished their cleanup outside, and they're heading in to use the sink. So Ian and Barbara climb back up. They had just begun climbing down the chain, so it's that they don't have a lot of work to cancel out. And the doctor and Susan head down the drain to hide down there. Unfortunately, the criminals take their time rolling up their sleeves. They don't just rush right to the sink and start flooding it. So everybody has a chance to get to a somewhat safe place. <laughs> and Smithers notices the dead fly, and he says, it's wonderful. <laughs> he says, think what would happen with locusts. DN6 would wipe them out. But Smithers is puzzled as to why Pharaoh wanted to lie about DN6. Forrester says he was a fool, thought he could get away with it. Now, we the viewers know that Pharaoh didn't want to lie about it at all. It's <laughs> Forrester who wants to lie about mm -hmm. it, but lie about it and make it seem better than it actually is. Forrester says the report will have to go to Pharaoh's boss, but it'll have to go with some slight amendments, which he will make. And Smithers says, well, I don't want to know about that, which is... Kind of unwise, because uh, if he could get a look at Pharaoh's report, it could save him a bit of <laughs> wondering, but oh well. Smithers stops the drain. Barbara and Ian are back in the briefcase, and down in the pipe, the doctor and Susan hear water running. Smithers is running the water, and only a drain stopper is between the deluge and the doctor. <laughs> and uh, Smithers washes his hands... And then he pulls the drain plug, and that's this episode's cliffhanger. <laughs> yes, m most exciting cliffhanger in Doctor Who history, <laughs> pulling the plug in <laughs> <and> the sink. <laughs> <laughs> okay, and our next episode is Crisis. Mm -hmm. So the Doctor and Susan are about to be washed away, but then, you know, there are different levels of cliffhangers in Doctor Who over time, <laughs> but many times they pull this little annoying trick where, you know, inevitable death, it turns out there's an easy little answer. So in this case, it turns out they were standing right next to a convenient overflow pipe <laughs> that sort of extended <laughs> off from the pipe. So they step into that, and when the water comes down, it bypasses them. In the previous episode... 
We saw them looking worried uh, somewhere down in the pipe, and it it wasn't clear where they were because they didn't seem to be clinging to the sides of the pipe. They mm-hmm. were just down there looking worriedly up at the drain. Um, <clears throat> so they were already in the overflow pipe, I think, which makes it even <laughs> even less of a cliffhanger if you know that. But <laughs> right. Oh, well. So Barbara and Ian don't know whether they've survived, because all they know is that the plug was pulled and the water went down, so presumably they've been drowned. So they yeah. start to go to the sink, and this is something where one of the things that was removed, and, and I think probably it was a good idea to remove it, is that at this point in the original story that they actually filmed, the black cat shows up and goes to the sink and drinks some of the water before it went down, and the black cat dies. Mm-hmm. And you see it on screen. It's not even an off-screen thing that it's, you know, its corpse is there, and they walk up to it and talk about it and everything. And I kind of think that a, a cat dying, I mean, adults are get upset enough about this. <laughs> you know, kids seeing that probably not the best thing for a Doctor Who episode. <laughs> yeah, but I think at this point we pretty much abandoned all pretense of being this being for kids. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Uh, but, uh, so they, so Barbara and Ian start to climb into the sink now that the cat has been edited out <laughs> and, uh, the doctor and Susan climb out of the drain and they all have a happy reunion. And I'm going to say, I think this sink set is actually pretty good. Uh, the drain is great. The same, I mean, it does, you know, uh, some people complain about the chain going down to the plug, but I, I still think it's pretty good. Yeah. I was, I was going to specifically mention the chain as something I thought looked pretty good. Yeah, it's funny. that uh, Yeah, I read some criticism of it. And I kept looking for there being visual trickery here. And, I, you know, I've mentioned before this YouTube channel called uh, Corridor Crew, where they do visual effects things, where they discuss, you know, movies as visual effects and what does and doesn't work. And it sort of taught me some techniques to look for. And so I kept looking for kind of like you would do, oh, is this CGI or is this, you know, Right. Um, you know, a projection, but no, they had shadows over everything as they walked through that whole thing was there and real. So they built this, this sink set and I thought it was pretty impressive. Uh, yeah. Yeah. It was a, it was a good set. It, it, it looks very much like a sink. The, 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 the drain looked good too. I mean, it just, it was just a good set. Yep. Yeah. A lot of the sets are actually, I mean, like the matchbox was pretty decent. The briefcase was mm-hmm. good. It just looks mm-hmm. like it's thick leather, you know, mm-hmm. Yeah, that, they've done a lot of good stuff with the, the set design in this one. Meanwhile, we see that Forrester has completed doctoring the report, and he insists that he now needs to make a phone call as Pharaoh to complete the deception. And Smithers insists no one's going to be fooled. <laughs> it turns out he's right. <laughs> but Forrester's like, look, he would have called his boss, so I've got to call his boss and act like I'm him. And he then uses the classic never misses trick of putting his hanky over the mouthpiece because <laughs> that'll totally change his voice. And the telephone operator who puts the call through isn't fooled for a second. <laughs> it's like, that's not Pharaoh. I know Pharaoh's voice. And she and her husband, we'll see here, and they are in this a bit, but they were much more uh, in the stuff that was cut out. So, hmm. And I think they probably were kind of a funny, interesting thing. So that's probably a downside hmm. of the material that they cut out. Yeah. But the office seems fooled as Forrester talks to him about how great this DN6 is and how he's very enthusiastic and he's mailing them this report, showing them it's 60% more effective than other insecticides. And by the way, then he's heading off to France in his little boat. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, it works on them, even though the operator wasn't fooled. 
question just popped into my head here, and <clears throat> this may not this may not be something you know off the top of your head, but yeah, you know, during the first season, we had talked about how a lot of it was it was done effectively live. So in in this season, is it more deliberately staged or more? You know what I mean? Like not all live, but. But right. done in parts, I, I think or... we're heading in that direction. Things were changing pretty quickly, but this story in particular, obviously, they couldn't do it live with the actors on the sets with the big stuff and the other guys in a different, you know, completely different set doing things. So um, definitely, I think this is a case where they did a lot more editing, but there were still budget yeah. constraints. So, for example, when they decided to take out all that material from the third and fourth episode and combine them into one, they still couldn't afford to edit on video. So for whatever reason, technically editing on video was very expensive. So what mm. they did was they put the video onto 35 millimeter film and then they edited the 35 millimeter film. Mm. And I think it's probably, and I don't know, but I think the difference is that video, you know, is just a long stream of data and editing it is probably very difficult because there's not necessarily a clear point between one frame and another, right? It's just a bunch right. of data. So once they put it on 35 millimeter film, even though it would seem like that would be expensive, well, the film is a, is a very binary thing, right? You just cut between the frames, literally right. with a scissor you at can... the time. Mm -hmm. But yeah, I, I think d my general impression is during this period of this two, three years here, British television switched very quickly from everything being essentially live filming to being much more edited. Okay. Meanwhile, the crew comes across Pharaoh's little notebook, and it, it actually, another one, uh, prop that's pretty good, you know, it's a really, to them, it's a really large notebook. They're actually walking <laughs> around on it, and it clearly shows the formula for DN6, but it's too big for them to read all at once. They can only see parts of the page at a time, so <laughs> the doctor determines it would be useful for them to know about the formula, so they need to map out the page section by section, so I think he has Ian, like walk on parts of the paper and tell him what he sees. But fortunately, they do that off screen. <laughs> we yeah. don't have to see it. It's kind of like they're, I don't know, you probably have had activity books where they had like a picture with a grid over it and they'd say, copy copy the squares of the grid to the yeah. other blank grid. And I, I think <laughs> that's kind of what they were trying to do. <laughs> yeah. And apparently in the original version, the Doctor and Ian then spend a bunch of time talking about the molecular structure of DN6. So maybe another one that's just as well to be to be not in the final version. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, it's not like you could use it to build an actual pesticide. <laughs> <laughs> Although one thing I read said they had an actual scientist look at the formula, and he said, well, this would be okay as a glue, <laughs> but it wouldn't be an insecticide. So apparently there actually was something. <laughs> no kidding. <laughs> uh, let's see. Uh, once they're done, the doctor determines that the inventor of DN6 has made it everlasting. <laughs> And Susan immediately realizes this means that it would seep into the soil and kill everything. Yeah, that's the real everlasting gobstopper. <laughs> Barbara asks about humans. You know, for some reason, she keeps being interested in this. If they eat and drink things infected with this, the doctor says, well, it could kill humans, too, even by coming into contact with it, which is the wrong thing to say to Barbara. And she gets really upset. And, you know, they're sort of... Assuming that she's just exhausted and they're sort of trying to comfort her, they don't understand that they keep telling her things that she's going to die. <laughs> and I'm not going to cover all these points, but as the story goes along through this episode, Barbara gets progressively sicker and she's trying to hide it from the others, but they do keep noticing and asking her about it, but they're just assuming that she's exhausted. Yeah. So they can't eat anything. 
But the doctor says they could drink water from that tap. And Ian says, okay, I'm going to go get water from the tap. And the doctor says, well, we'll all go with you because I want to go in that direction to get to the telephone to, because I think with the telephone, we can try and stop what's happening. And I think there's something we're missing in here from the cuts because the whole water thing immediately disappears and doesn't come up again, even though Ian said he's, he was going to go get water. Mm. So I assume that's part of what was cut out. Could be, yeah. So the crew goes to a giant telephone, again, projected on the giant screen thingy. And Barbara and Susan have found and brought along a giant cork, and they point out this could be used to push it underneath the receiver of the phone to get the phone to pick up. So with a whole lot of effort between all of them, they push a cork under each end of the receiver and get the phone to pick up, and the operator answers, and... She can't hear anything, keeps asking who they want to call. They're all simultaneously shouting. And apparently they wrote out a script ahead of time because they're saying the same words at the same time yeah. while they're shouting. <laughs> and they're trying to get her to put them through to the police. But she can't hear anything because, you know, they're little squeaky voices. <laughs> and they only hear growling sounds coming from the other end. Yeah. So that didn't work. Um, then Barbara collapses. Ian offers to get water for her. And... He's going to take the handkerchief she has and, and you know, probably uh, put some water on it. And she freaks out and refuses to let him have it, says nobody can touch it. And then she faints. And I like her acting here. I mean, she really just gets very intense. And from their point of view, they just don't know why she's acting this way. And, you know, but unlike, unfortunately, when Caroline Ford screams at Susan and it never quite feels real, this this really does feel like someone, I think, who's going through all this. And I can buy it. Hmm. The doctor comes over and smells the insecticide in her handkerchief, and he realizes what's going on. He realizes that she's clearly touched something. Ian says he doesn't know when she would have done it, but they were near these seeds, and she, you know, everything was clear. Like, he was totally not paying attention because he had all the information he needed to know when she touched the, <laughs> the seeds. Barbara wakes up, and the doctor says, and I it might be true, says her molecules are too small to fight off the insecticide, but... <laughs> if they can get it a normal size, the poison will be 70 times less effective. And one of the things I read related to the, the square cube rule you were talking earlier, in <laughs> fact, it would be something more like 300,000 times less effective. No. <laughs> <laughs> so they didn't quite do their math. <laughs> and, you know, they asked the doctor if he's confident that he can get it a normal size. And he says he's totally confident. But then he sort of turns away to the camera and we see that he's not so sure. <laughs> But at least this is a case where he's trying to give them confidence. I mean, one of the things they criticize him for, and even earlier in this episode, Barbara, or this story, Barbara criticized him, is that all he'll do usually is say the negative stuff and not <laughs> give people any hope. So in this case, oh, he's trying yeah. to give them a little bit of hope. So that's good. <laughs> <laughs> Meanwhile, Forrester is frustrated. He's in some other room of the house with Smithers. And when he picks up the phone, it doesn't seem to be working. And he realizes maybe some other phone in the house is off the hook. And I, <laughs> I suspect Younger viewers would just have no idea what's going on here, right? What is this about phones being connected <laughs> together? And if one phone's off the hook, you can't call, you know, none of that makes any sense in, in the modern <laughs> world. And Smithers uh, says, well, there is a phone by the sink in the lab. So, and I'm going to go check on it. And also I want to look at Pharaoh's notes. And the moment he says he wants to look at Pharaoh's notes, Forrester <laughs> gets very upset. And as soon as Smithers walks away, Forrester pulls out his uh, conversation ender <laughs> and checks that it's loaded. <laughs> so he's a, got kind of a hair trigger. <laughs> <laughs> also, again, Smithers has been working on DN6 for years, and he's suddenly going uh, anyway, <laughs> to get it to some surprise when he looks at Pharaoh's notes or whatever. Right, so <laughs> he, probably, he probably wants to know why 
what Pharaoh's motivation was to uh, to lie about uh, you. Yeah, I think I hadn't quite picked up the whole the whole thing about Forrester saying that Pharaoh was lying. So you know, I guess uh, it makes sense. But so since their phone scheme didn't work, the doctor realizes that maybe they should cause some big trouble to get authorities <laughs> to come to the house, such as starting a fire. <laughs> He's disturbingly delighted with this plan. He's rubbing his hands together gleefully and saying, there's nothing like a good fire, is there? And I'm thinking, <laughs> the last story, Reign of Terror, started out with him almost dying in a house fire. <laughs> <laughs> oh, okay. Yeah, he, he's resilient. <laughs> so their hope is that a big fire would get law enforcement here and the body would be found and this whole thing would be put an end to, because, you know, once the police show up, they'll say, you can't do that DN6 thing. And <laughs> it'll be all over. <laughs> Anyway, Ian sees something that inspires him, and I was confused, because to me it looks like a giant pawn from a chess set on its side, but it turned out that it's a laboratory gas nozzle. Hmm. And I, uh, this one, I'm going to say, for all the really, really good props that they did for this story, I don't think this gas nozzle was one of them. But <laughs> uh, So he has some idea about that, and that's the gas nozzle he had mentioned last episode. And Smithers and Forrester enter the room. Forrester finds the corks that were holding up the phone and keeping him from being able to use the other phone. And he thinks Smithers disabled the phone. Meanwhile, Smithers is disturbed to realize he has DN6 on his hands and he's trying to wipe it off. And he actually looks very much like Barbara trying to get off his hands. And also, Mm -hmm. he doesn't help himself because when Forrester says, why did you disable the phone? Smithers is like, we don't have time to talk about that now. And it's like, well, wait, no, you, you know, Smithers had nothing to do with it, but he's now made it seem like he did, which is maybe not a good idea for someone who just murdered somebody. (laughs) Just, just trying to help him out here. (laughs) So as soon as the phone is back on the hook, the operator can tell and she calls them up. And she's clearly exploring, like, she's trying to figure out what's going on because she knows that when Forrester had called up and pretended to be Pharaoh, she knew it wasn't Pharaoh. So she says she has a long-distance call for Pharaoh where they had to pay for it. Will he accept the charges? And (laughs) Forrester pulls out the ever-trusty hanky, (laughs) covers the mouthpiece, and then pretends to be Pharaoh. One of the funny things in all these phone things is that neither he nor the actor even bothers to change his voice at all. You would think he would at least try to emulate Pharaoh, but he doesn't, you know, because the (laughs) hanky is somehow magically going to make his voice gruffer or something. (laughs) (laughs) So he's like, oh, oh, I'm here. I'll accept the charges. And the operator is, again, not fooled for a second. (laughs) But she plays along that there's a call from London. And then she says, oh, the caller disconnected. Meanwhile, her husband decides maybe he should go to this house and check out what's going on. And it's not until now, when he puts on his cap, that we discover that he's a bobby. <laughs> so, mm. so while the others work to get the gas nozzle turned on, Ian gets a giant match. <laughs> and then Susan comes to help him. <laughs> Again, physics-wise, I'm not so sure about this. But the plan is for them to <laughs> charge with the match toward the matchbox and scrape it along the side to light it. <laughs> <laughs> it's totally believable for one-inch people. <laughs> <laughs> And it turns out that what they've done is they've pointed the gas nozzle at a pressurized spray can that should explode from the flame. And as we kind of see over time, it turns out that this can is insecticide. Don't know if it's DN6 or not, but as we'll see, probably poetic justice if it is. (laughs) And meanwhile, Smithers has been looking through Pharaoh's notes and he suddenly has a come to Jesus moment. He's realizing that DN6 is killing everything around the house. And that actually it's extremely destructive, which after years of working with this compound, yeah, you think that, he might have known that. <laughs> I, I, I think that, I mean, the, there there are various little holes 
this three episode series, but uh, I think this that he he would have tunnel vision to the extent that he would work on it for years and never stop to think. Now, could this kill anything that we don't want to kill? So Forrester pulls the gun on him and then in classic villain mode spends a bunch of time explaining everything that's happened, even though he's presumably about to shoot Smithers. So there's not a lot of point to it, you'd think. But uh, Meanwhile, the little guys get the match lit and the gas nozzle is flaming, heating up the can. They all take cover because they realize it's going to explode. Smithers and Forrester now enter that room with Forrester having a gun on Smithers and they conveniently stand next to the can. <laughs> And Smithers is saying, DN6 is more deadly than radiation. You know, don't you understand? <laughs> um, at this point, the can of insecticides explodes and gets Forrester in the eyes. So, you know, poetic justice. <laughs> Smithers grabs his gun, which is then immediately taken from him by the Bobby, the husband of the operator who has just shown up. <laughs> and now the crew rushes back to the ship and the doctor stops along the way to pick up a big poison seed. And... <laughs> He does use some uh, cloth to protect his hands. Yeah, he wraps it up. So that was good. Yeah, Ian objects and says, why are you bothering with this? You know, we just need to get back to the TARDIS. And Doctor says he'll have a surprise. Back in the TARDIS, the Doctor makes some adjustments. The TARDIS disappears. And then the seed begins to shrink, <laughs> showing them that things are returning to normal. And they're getting big again. <laughs> yeah, part of the weird mystery of space pressure. <laughs> yes, that the seed will shrink while the rest of them will get bigger, you know. And Barbara is now <laughs> feeling better because, you know, she's 70 times more resistant. And everyone but the doctor <laughs> goes to wash up. And now the TARDIS is landing somewhere, but the monitor is no longer smashed. And they, it may be a case of the editing. They never explain how the monitor got fixed. But it's still on the fritz. It's not showing anything useful. So the doctor doesn't know where they're landing. He's concerned about this. And the titles for the next episode come up, World's End. Mm -hmm. And it's the end of this episode. Let's talk about some stuff here. So, you know, from, mm -hmm. first of all, I think me, one of the only three episodes, if, if the only three episode story, we have a two episode story coming up, but they're very unusual. Mm -hmm. uh, obviously not intended to be three episodes. I did want to mention that, and this might be when they were showing the head and they were showing the test tubes and i was saying that they were standing in front of the screen it might be where they were doing this technique it's actually an old stage magic trick using silvered mirrors where the actors were behind glass and the large images were then projected onto these mirrors mm -hmm. and this was called pepper's ghost it was created in the 1800s and done as a stage trick where a person is underneath the stage being projected onto glass on the stage so they appear like a ghost and they can appear and disappear and the existence of this trick actually inspired a bunch of ghost plays in the 1800s. So they're mm. sort of a fad for these for ghosts running around on the stage. And <laughs> it's also the principle behind the teleprompter. So the same thing happens oh, there, right? You know, okay. text is projected up onto glass that other people can't see. But, you know, I would say effects-wise, again, I, I think the props are really good and everything. But the biggest downside is we never see backgrounds in the house. We only see blackness. So even at times when they're supposed to be right next to these, you know, giant people standing next to them, you have no sense whatsoever that these people are in the same space. And I, I think that hurts the story. But what's yeah. your feeling about kind of the overall, the effects of being small? Yeah, overall, I thought it was good. I mean, the certainly the miniaturized items, you know, the briefcase and the matchbox mm -hmm. and all that, they were well done. But you're, 
You're right that you don't get a sense of the laboratory as a whole. Like while we're, you know, if we're if, if we're seeing Ian and Barbara, we should still be able to see the opposite wall behind them. You would <laughs> think, but but we can't. So yeah, that's that's kind of uh, it's a little disappointing, I guess. But it's, it didn't really hinder my enjoyment too much. Right. I just and there are times tried. when. They're right next to the big people, and yes, they're only one inch tall. But but if if you had one inch tall people running around on the table in front of you, I think you would notice it. <laughs> <laughs> probably, yeah. <laughs> Actually, I'd probably I'd probably look for something to smash them with, and hopefully, <laughs> hopefully, I noticed they were human before right. I did it. <laughs> so, as you mentioned, you know, Barbara is unusually irresponsible here. I don't know how how believable did you find this. <laughs> Um, yeah, I, I, I was willing to go with it just for the story. I mean, uh, but also, you know, for one thing, she's seen what this can do firsthand and who knows, it, it, it may actually have some kind of mental effect as well. So, you know, it didn't bother me too much that she was behaving the way she was that, uh, you know, I mean, she shouldn't have picked up the big sticky thing in the first place after <laughs> the, the warning. But she did, you know. It's water under the bridge, so yeah, it didn't it didn't bother me much. I uh, didn't detract from my experience. One thing that was in the cut material. So some people have said, why, you know, do they keep focusing on trying to deal with the DN six problem rather than curing Barbara? And in the cut material, she actually insists that they focus on the bigger thing that she doesn't want them to worry about her for the moment. So at mm-hmm. least there's a kind of a a reason for that. Anything else about the story or the acting? I don't, yeah, well, let me ask you first. <laughs> um, anything else? No, it's, I mean, uh, are, are we getting to the, uh, getting is, toward this, it, is yeah. this my <laughs> final verdict or? Not quite yet. Uh, <laughs> the thing oh, okay. Just any other details yep. I wanted to mention? Uh, uh, nothing, uh, nothing really comes to mind. It's, I, I felt like, you know, the crew, was largely fine with their acting, and I thought Barbara's acting was especially good in this. But I, I would say that, to me, the the guest actors, there nothing really stood out except maybe the operator, you know, but because so much mm. of her part was cut out, we don't really get a chance. But I think she might have been a fun person to get more of, certainly since the uh, since Forrester and stuff are such kind of dead bricks. <laughs> Smithers has mm. a little bit more going for him, but again, his motivations and everything don't quite make sense because he seems to be... Very dumb for a scientist who's been working on all this. Yeah. Yeah, Forrester, I guess, was kind of, um, well, he was pretty effectively ruthless, you know. He sort of projected that I'm a murderer vibe. <laughs> so, uh, but yeah, the operator, she she could have been, uh, you know, with, with more lines, she could have been a more fun character. But then again, I would say don't pat it if you don't have to. So. <laughs> she did remind me of, one rainy dingy. <laughs> a gracious hello. Have I reached the party to whom I am speaking? Is is this General Motors? Hi, General. How's everything going? To tell me, how's Mrs. Motors? <laughs> okay, so it, with that, is it worth watching for a modern audience? Hmm. Well, I enjoyed it. I mean, I would. Again, it goes back to how you're defining that. If if you're defining it as you got to sit down and watch this, you know, then I'd say 
probably you don't got to sit down and watch <laughs> this. But was it fun? Sure, it was real fun, and it, it it's a uh, it's got some it's got some logical loopholes in it, you know, like Smithers working on it for years and not realizing that it's going to kill everything in creation. Um, <laughs> it's not perfect, but it's fun. It was enjoyable. So in that sense, yeah, it's worth watching. I, I don't regret <laughs> having watched it. <laughs> Guess we call it sort of worth watching. <laughs> yeah. We'll have to come up with various levels of right. worth watching. Right. <laughs> yeah, well, it's not, I mean, there are things that are painful or, you know, or maybe fun to watch because they're really bad. There's, you know, mm. um, I, I would say maybe the biggest thing in the favor of this is that it is really ambitious. And, you know, because it was ambitious, it took them a year to even mm. do what they did. And even though it didn't all work, it still worked pretty well for something at that time. Yeah, that no, was definitely fun. If you like Doctor Who, and I've I've acquired a taste for what I've seen of it so far, then uh, uh, then this is more Doctor Who. <laughs> <laughs> that, is, that it is. <laughs> okay, well, next up, we will watch the story that was supposed to start off this season, The Dalek Invasion of Earth. And I'm going to be very curious to see what Guy thinks of this one. Hmm, I'm thinking we should shoot at him, probably. <laughs> 